0: Father, I pray that as we come now to this passage, this new chapter, that you would enable me to teach your word effectively, to, um, to be able to continue to see the flow of Mark's gospel, to see how he has chosen to tell this story the way that he has, and to follow his themes, and to follow his, his uh, flow of argument and thought, that we may see the Christ that he saw, that we might see uh, the the glory as he saw it, and that we might be transformed as the message and the man transformed him. Amen. Okay. Well, we've got a couple of short little sections coming up, and this this week and next. Um, In all, if you're interested, we've just got a few verses this week. We're going to be talking more about the sending out of the twelve next time. John the Baptist is going to be dead for us the week after that. And then we come to the feeding of the five thousand, which is very intriguing because of how different it is in other gospel accounts. And the same goes for the walking on water and I think we may combine that with the, the little healing at the end, although we may not. So we've got a, got a lot to do in this chapter, but there's no rush here tonight. We're looking at the passage where a proverbial expression that is well, probably well known to us um, is mentioned here. And that is the expression, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So let's read through the passage. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about... Among the villages teaching. Well, it's a short little passage, but there's a lot here. And let's go through it and unpack it a step at a time. So he went away from there. So, just as a refresher of chapter five, in chapter five, he's crossed over the lake and he's come to Gentile territory. And he finds that he is rejected by the Gentiles as he was amongst the Jews, but for a very different reason. Because he was amongst Gentiles, he had no problem in proclaiming and he had no problem in healing initially. And when the man who was formerly possessed by the demons wants to come with Jesus, Jesus gives him his own ministry and gets him to to not become a disciple of Jesus with him, but to become a disciple of Jesus ministering amongst his own people when he comes back to Jewish territory, because of that foundational event, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the time when the Jews rejected the Messiahship of Jesus, a decision that has led to the passing of judgment that can never be revoked, hence unforgivable. Now, since that time, Jesus has been speaking in parables and he's been teaching in parables, as some commentators say. In other words, the the deeds that he's done, as well as the words that he's spoken, have been shielded, clouded if you like. Just as when he speaks in parables, he speaks in parables so that the masses don't understand. In the same way, he's done some healing but he's done it in private. He's done it with with, with it done secretly because the miracles would point to who he is and he's not any longer proclaiming to Israel who he is. Israel has rejected him. A decision has been made. So when he's come back to Israel, he heals a woman who had this blood flow, this blood disorder, and he heals Jairus' daughter And when I say healed, of course, I mean brings back to life. But with both of these things, they are miracles that are done. Firstly, they're done in private. They're not done for for the mass public to see. And there is a degree of secrecy about them. At the end of chapter 5, remember, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. In other words, I've just raised your daughter from the dead, but you can't tell anybody about it, which, which to me is hysterical. you imagine if your daughter had died and someone raised your daughter from the dead, but you're not allowed to tell anyone? It's just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Of course, word got out, but there's a principle there. There's a principle there. And the other thing, of course, about these is that these miracles were done as a response to the faith of the people. And I spent a lot of time emphasising this two weeks ago, but it's worth repeating. This is not a miraculous, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, you're going to have enough faith. If you have enough faith, you'll be healed. It's not, no, 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 it's not. It's not like the televangelists and all that heresy. What it's doing is it's that these people are exercising faith in Christ. It's not a measure of their faith. It's not saying, oh, would you really have enough faith? Maybe you should give me some more money to show that you have more faith and you have enough faith. This isn't measuring, guys. This is simply them using their faith to show that they are disciples. Because the miracles at this point... teaching tools of who Christ is and is teaching his disciples. He's not teaching the public anymore. Now all of that needs to be remembered as we come to chapter 6 because he goes home. Now him going home is an interesting thing. Remember earlier in the gospel he had a base of sorts. He had a, uh, uh, an HQ, if you like, for his ministry. That was, was Simon Peter's house, almost certainly. That's where the mother-in-law was that was the first healing. And that was in Capernaum. And he, and he based himself in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a town that was approximately 25 miles away from Nazareth that was more up in the hill country. In other words... He's going about doing his ministry, having his base and all the word spreading about him and what have you, but he's not gone home. Now, I'm obviously walking on foot and stuff, and I, you know, I obviously this last week have been reminded again how far about 25 miles or so is on foot, but, you know, it's, it's something that they could have done. It was, you know, a day's journey or so, but he never went home. And we saw at the end of chapter 3 that his family came to him and tried to interrupt his preaching so that he had to cast them out. Same word as he used of demons who interrupted his preaching as well. He had to cast his family out because they were trying to hinder his ministry. He didn't go home, so they went to him. Just 25 miles away. Finally now, he goes home. Now, he goes home, he goes away from there to his home. In other words, the, the Mark is showing us a contrast. He's saying, look, he's been back to Israel where he's hiding himself to a degree, but he has disciples there. So why is Jesus preaching and ministering? within Israel, when Israel have rejected him? The answer is simple, because although Israel on a whole has rejected him, he has people, individuals, disciples, who haven't rejected him, and they need to be taught. So when Jesus is now teaching in Israel, he's not saying the kingdom of God is at hand, as he was in chapter 1. He's not saying, hey, here's the kingdom, it's within reach. You come and receive me and receive the kingdom. That's gone. He's now talking in parables. Mark tells us that in chapter 4. He did not speak in public apart from in parables now. So he's preaching and he's teaching in Israel, but only for the benefit of disciples. Okay? That's got to be in our minds. So Mark is taking us from Israel generally, where he's been rejected, but he has disciples, to his hometown specifically. That's the change. That's the contrast that Mark is showing us. And he comes to this hometown And his disciples followed him. That's a a little aside at the edge, but it's an important one, because remember, everything he's doing is he's, he's teaching his disciples. Every lesson, everything that happens, good and bad, is there as a lesson for his disciples. He's told us this. Mark's told us this. He's teaching his disciples. He's training his disciples now. So when it says, and his disciples followed him, what we as the reader should be aware of is there's stuff about to happen that his disciples are going to need to learn. That's important. So, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, this is interesting, because he's teaching publicly. This should not suggest in any way, shape, or form he's changed his policy about Israel, because we've been told that when he teaches from now on, he's going to be teaching in parables. So there's no reason to think there's any change. There's nothing in the text that suggests there's a change. Therefore, we can conclude quite safely and happily that when he goes in the synagogue to teach, he's basically teaching in parables. He's teaching in such a way as to teach his disciples and to hide the message from people generally. So the the nature of his synagogue teaching is very different from the nature of his synagogue teaching in the beginning of chapter 1, when he starts his ministry, and he goes off on the Sabbath and teaches in the synagogue. The two passages are written with very similar language. As I said to you this morning, that's what we call... Inner textuality, it's the author using the same kind of words, the same sentence structure in the same book to link these passages together. Mark is associating this with the synagogue teaching in chapter 1 in the sense that he, it's the same thing and yet we know it's not the same thing. There's this similarity, it's a Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue to teach, because that's where the people will gather, but now he's teaching his disciples. But the other thing that is similar to chapter 1, is in chapter 1 when he taught in the synagogue, the response was, in chapter 1 and verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. Now in chapter 6 and verse 2, and many who heard him were astonished. So again, there is astonishment at his teaching. (laughs) In other words, Jesus is surprising and shocking people when he teaches clearly, and he's surprising and shocking people when he teaches in parables. He was just a pretty amazing teacher, full stop. That was the nature of his teaching. What's interesting is, is that the astonishment here is a very different kind of astonishment. We're told in chapter one, and this is where, and and by the way, just as an aside, this is what authors do a lot within a textuality, is they will draw comparisons with early passages and say, look, this is the same, this is the same, this is the same. So we've got that other passage in our mind, and then having drawn the similarities, they then draw the contrasts so that we can see that though these, these two things are alike in some regards, He's drawn our attention to them together to actually show us the dissimilarities. That's what he's doing here. In chapter 1, they were astonished. That's your similarity. He, He was astonished. They were astonished in his teaching. For, that's your reason, he taught them as one who had authority and not the scribes. So when Jesus taught plainly, he didn't say, look, I want to tell you about the kingdom of God. Now, Rabbi A says this, and then Rabbi B says this. Now, we might reconcile those because Rabbi C. Now, I think that Rabbi D's got a good point here as well. Now, I myself, let's call me Rabbi E, I think that there's a bit of A here and a bit of B here. Not sure I agree with C, but a bit of D in the mix, which kind of is similar to what Rabbi F says. See, I'd be on snooze attack listening to that every week, but that's how they taught. Jesus, when he taught, just said, well, this is what Isaiah says about the kingdom of God. This is what Moses spoke about the kingdom of God. And this is what he meant. End of story. That's authority. That's the authority of the Bible. And Jesus is like, whoa, and they're like, what's this? What's going on? I have exactly the same thing here when visitors come for the first time on Sundays. People say, your teaching's just amazing. You you just teach the Bible. (laughs) And I find it amusing, because it's not me, and I find it amusing because 20-odd years ago, when I first heard people teach the Bible, I said exactly the same thing. And it's not me, there's tons of people do it. It's the fact that my job is just to let the Bible speak. Not to tell you stories, not to tell you what other people think, but to say, here's the Bible, here it is. And that's how Jesus taught, with authority. And they were amazed because no one else did that. They're like, wow, this is amazing. Now here in chapter 6, the similarity is the astonishment. These people are astonished at what Jesus is saying. But the teaching is different, we know that. But now the reason for the astonishment, that's your main reason of dissimilarity. Let's have a look. They were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. So the reason for astonishment is completely different. There's a whole bunch of questions that they ask in response, and this, these questions are expressing why they're astonished. Okay? Let's go through them. Where did the man, where did this man, and that's almost a derogatory term. I mean, so-and-so can get wisdom, and so-and-so can get wisdom, right? Now, we know that Joe's son, or, or, or Ben's son, We know that these people have been to rabbinical school. So we know where they got their wisdom, but where did this one, this guy, where did he get his wisdom from? It's derogatory. They know him. Look, this is a small town, right? This is the kind of place that, you know, if you grew up in a, in a village in the, in the hills 50 years ago, you might have had some idea of, you know? When you walk down your street and, you, and, and someone comes to visit and they say, so, so what kind of people live here? And you say, well, that's, a, that's Bob at number five, and then ne- next door that's Gene at number seven, and, and, and the Smiths live at number nine, and they're kind of nice. Now their son, Joe Bob, he's gone off to college now, and everybody knows everybody. And they know Jesus. They know who he is, right? Like, we, we know him. These are his brothers. Interestingly enough, we come to, we'll come to that in a moment, these are his brothers, here's his sisters, we know this family, and we know that Jesus is a carpenter. So Jesus, like anybody else, would have been trained up in the profession of his father. That was typical in that era, it was typical for centuries afterwards, it was was typical in most cultures until very recently, relatively speaking. And he grew up in his father's profession and he was a carpenter. We think of carpenters as people today who might make nice things like this wooden pulpit, who might carve and engrave things. Carpenter in those days was a much broader term. It was people who literally worked with their hands. Uh, Houses would have typically been made, yes, with wood, and there would have been Carving involved, but all the bolts and stuff, they were probably made out of wood as well. But but of course, wood wasn't cheap. It wasn't as readily available. Trees had to be cut down and prepared, and that wasn't easy in those days. And so much of the houses were made of stone, and people who would build houses from stone were carpenters as well. The the word carpenter wasn't limited to wood in quite the way it is today. It would encompass all sorts of building, you know? So yes, it would have involved things like tables and chairs, and engravings, but it would have also included heavy labour, lifting stones and rocks, and building houses, like a construction worker, perhaps. So the carpenter was quite a broader term than we would use it today, and that's worth remembering. You often, when you see Jesus in, portrayed in the movies and stuff, he's often this sort of skinny little white guy who just <laughs> you can't, can't, you can't, uh, you know, you, you would, you know, you'd say, well. He may well be the son of God, but I'd have him an arm wrestle, wouldn't I? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But he probably would have been quite butch. I mean, he's lifting heavy rocks and stuff and building and would have been quite a a strong guy. Now, I don't want to get too stereotypey or labely, but you know, we have people today that will have more manual jobs, you know? People who build things and do things and are good with their hands and are often very strong. And there's another group of people who for work will sit behind a desk and tap on a computer screen, you know? And these are very different kinds of work. Now, to some degree that division would have existed. And there were people who who would have gone off and would have studied at rabbinical school to be a rabbi. People who would have been students. And that was very, very renowned. That was very important and very highly respected. And they're the sort of people that when they open their mouths to preach, you listen, they've got things to say. They're educated. He was a builder. He was a construction worker. He lifted up rocks and cut bits of wood and built houses and furniture. He's not gone to rabbinical school. Who are you kidding? So when, when we have this, these questions, what is the wisdom given to him? And before that, where did the man get these things? These are not questions of astonishment like, wow, that's good. Where do you get that from? Man, that's impressive. No, 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 no. That was chapter one. This is chapter six. This is like, who does he think he is? <laughs> where, 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 where's he getting off on, coming and te- we, teaching us stuff? Who, 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 who gives this guy the right to think that he can just stand up, out of nowhere in the synagogue, and start teaching us? We know who he is. He's a carpenter. We He's his family. We know them. That's the type of thing that is being expressed here. And then, the third question, and this is a clever one. How are such mighty works done by his hands? How are are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, it's interesting that to me, because the emphasis on him being a carpenter, him being a builder, is that this is not a person who worked with their brain. This is a person who worked with his hands. And so, again, it's a clever little derogatory way of speaking of Jesus. It's saying, look, we've heard all these stories of him doing these miracles and stuff down there in the lowlands, but I don't buy it. Because how do those hands you know, the kind of hands that put together houses and build rocks and make furniture and uh, do all that kind of stuff. How do those hands become healing hands? He's not a rabbi. He's no prophet. That's what the question means. So when, we, when they say, how are such mighty works done by his hands, they're disputing the claims And the use of the word hands in the context of him then saying immediately afterwards, is this not the carpenter? That is derogatory. We know what kind of guy he is. He's a guy that works with his hands, and his hands are building hands, not healing hands. He's not a student of scripture. He's not a rabbi. He's not a prophet. We don't buy it. And I think, again, this is classic in that these are the kind of details that if we don't follow the flow of the argument, if we don't know the background, we often miss and misunderstand. But it's very, very clear, I think, that that is what is being spoken of here. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? In the parallel account in Matthew, one of his brothers is called Joseph. And here he's called Joseph, which is... uh, It's basically the same name, but done differently. Like, you know, my son's Joseph, and we know him as Joe most of the time. It's the same name, it's just abbreviated. That would be similar. It's Joseph and Josess, if you want to Anglicanize these terms, as we do. Um, So that's essentially the same person. That's interesting to me because of this. We have, in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, the infancy accounts of Jesus. John and Mark um, don't teach us about the, the birth and the infancy of Christ in any way, shape, or form. They start off with an adult Jesus which kind of makes me realize that I haven't, aside from the occasional Christmas special, I haven't taught through the, the, the childhood, the birth, and what have you, of Jesus for over 20 years. Maybe we should do a gospel at some point in the mornings in the future, Matthew or Luke. But but anyway, he doesn't deal with those things. But in those accounts, we know of Joseph being his earthly father, not genetically related but uh, his adopted father, if you like, who raised him. His father was a carpenter, we have that told to us elsewhere, and Jesus has followed in that trade. What's interesting is, is that um, the name Joseph being the same name as the father is very common in America. You often, hear today, have children who are named, particularly firstborn sons, named after their father. It's a very common thing here, but it wasn't in those days, it was very rare. And certainly it wasn't typically done when the father was alive. And um, it's interesting to me that Matthew, who has an infancy account, has him called Joseph, with the linkage there with the father, whereas here with Mark it's Josess, which is a different form of the same name. And I'm just thinking in terms of where is Joseph, what happened to him. Now, most scholars think that Joseph probably died before the adult ministry of Jesus, and there's certainly some clues here in that regard. He's known here as the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. We'll talk about that again in a moment. But the family is known around the mother, and that's certainly a clue. Um, Joseph is now... uh, has a slightly different name, so there's not a connection with the Father, and there's certainly no indication here that the Father is alive in any way, shape, or form. And uh, that's interesting for for a few reasons. Firstly, it shows that Jesus, at the time of his younger years, you know, he was about 30 or so when, when he came to public ministry, we saw the start of his public ministry with the Holy Spirit coming upon him and remaining in him, and him being empowered to do this ministry. And and I'll, I'll come back to that again in a minute. But until that point, he probably from about 13 or 14 years of age was working with his father. It seems as if his father may have died quite young, relatively speaking. I mean, Jesus certainly was able to do the work, but it may be that Jesus, as a teenager, was supporting his family. We know he's the firstborn, there are other kids now as as well, so it is perfectly possible, and highly likely and probable, that Joseph died leaving a widow with a young, large, I mean, he's got lots of brothers here, and sisters as well, family, And the onus of the burden of providing for that family would have fell onto Jesus' shoulders. He had the most important ministry of any person in the history of the world. And yet, for the bulk of his life, he was making sure that his family got by. That's really interesting. Really interesting. The other thing that's interesting from this is that he has here his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. James and Judas are the James and the Jude who ended up writing books of scripture. James, his brother, again we know his family don't believe in him during the gospel accounts, but we know that post-resurrection that they did. And James became pretty much the leader of the christian church in the early days there's a lot of evidence for that it's interesting because as protestants we shy away from there being a single leader of the church catholics like to have peter as the main leader of the church but all the historical evidence suggests that we're both wrong that there was a main leader of the church and it's actually james we should teach james sometime that's a good book anyways so so james and jude not only went on to uh to believe in him, they went on to be, have very significant ministries. But we have one, two, three, four named brothers and sisters here as well who are unnamed, which is interesting in that that would be more typical not to name them, which makes the phrase son of Mary a little bit more unusual, we're going to come back to that. But here we've got sisters, we've got at least six other children. So the Catholic concept of the perpetual virginity of Mary is utter rubbish. Mary went on to, to no longer be a virgin. She was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. Joseph decided, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that she should remain that way right the way through to the birth of Christ, but after that they had six other kids. And there's no indication at all that, that these were children that Joseph had had from a previous marriage or anything like that. In fact, if anything, there's a possibility that if Joseph did die young, that Mary may well have remarried and some of these children may not be Joseph's children but there is no indication that they're the children of anybody other than Mary. And to try and argue otherwise is a classic example of taking your theology and imposing it on Scripture, when we should be doing the opposite, which is taking Scripture and imposing it on our theology. And so uh, that's just a, a passage that, that gets, does away with that. And last thing on this whole family thing This is the carpenter, the son of Mary. Some people have, I mean there are all sorts of possibilities here. The Jewish way of speaking of someone was to say the son of and name the father. This is very unusual. That's the first thing to note. There are instances in the Old Testament where it's named the son of, uh, of a woman. I'm thinking particularly of the one beginning with a Z or Z as you say it. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she was a sister of David. And that's explainable because David was obviously so well known, and therefore this was the more significant parent, and that's unusually so. So there always has to be a reason. There are two possible reasons here for uh, the son of Mary And personally, I think there's a bit of both. I don't think you have to choose between them. One we've already mentioned, which is Joseph being dead and being dead for a fairly long period of time. Therefore, this is just the family that Mary raises. And that, to me, is A, probably the most important explanation, B, it suggests that these children were all Mary and Joseph's, and C, it suggests that she perhaps hasn't remarried subsequently. That would be my best guess of the situation. Some people think that there is an implication here that Jesus being the son of Mary is implying that with this myth, as they saw it, of a virgin birth, which of course they didn't believe, was basically just a really lame cover story for somebody getting pregnant out of wedlock. In other words, they're saying that Jesus was, you know, conceived out of wedlock, which would be a huge shame of that era, not so much today obviously, but back then it would have socially been a huge thing. And there may well be a dig here in saying, who are you standing up in a synagogue and preaching when you're an illegitimate child? Not much of a heritage for that, is there? Now, I think that I look at this passage, is that what's being communicated? Perhaps, perhaps not, maybe a little bit. I think at the very least there's maybe a hint of it. You know how sometimes people will have a dig at you, but put it in a way in which, you know, oh, no, I didn't mean that, I was meaning this, you know. Maybe a little bit of that going on. But it's interesting to note nonetheless. So all of their responses here are responses that, when we understand the context, that are negative concerning Jesus. So exactly like chapter 1, he gets up in a synagogue and he preaches. Exactly like chapter 1, people are astounded. But the situation otherwise is completely different. In chapter 1, he's preaching clearly. In chapter 6, he's preaching in parables. And in chapter 1, they're astounded because of the content of his preaching. And in chapter 6, they're astounded because who the heck are you to come and teach us? To summarize. And this is why, at the end of verse 3, they took offence at him. Now, I missed this completely, for which I apologise in chapter 4. Chapter 4, we have the parables, and we have the parables specifically of uh, the sower, the seeds. And in that parable, um, I missed the first use of a very important Greek word, scandalon. And scandalon is a word that is typically translated offense. And I missed it because I've been neglecting looking at the Greek as much as I should. And I apologize for that. And in my translation here, verse 17 of chapter 4, is talking about those who have uh, the seeds that have been sown on rocky ground. They hear the word and they immediately receive it with joy. And so we have people who hear the gospel, hear the preaching of the kingdom, and they go, woohoo, this is great. But they're not really saved. The way you see that they're not saved, is because they have no root, and they endure for a while, but then what happens is tribulations and trials comes along. And those trials basically test them, and they're like, nope, didn't want this, I'm out of here. And it shows that they were never saved to begin with. And it says in verse seventeen, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, the world, the word rather, sorry. Immediately they fall away. Now that's my ESV. They fall away. But literally in the Greek, it says, immediately they're offended. Scandalon, they're offended. And that's how I missed it. I apologize for that. But it's interesting because in Mark, of course, we've got that word immediately. Remember immediately? Hashtag boom, camera move. It's like, here we go, here we go, and camera pans, and focus. Boom. They're offended. That's the point, they're offended. It's like he's telling the story, telling the story, he's telling the story, and boom, they're offended. That's the whole point. So here you are, these people hear the gospel, Ah, that gospel, that sounds great. And Jesus, he sounds great. This Messiah thing, kingdom of God, oh, I'm all about that. Trials, temptation, persecution, troubles, whoa, I'm offended by that. I don't want this kind of hassle. I'm out of here. They're offended. They don't receive the gospel in salvation because they only want the good and not the bad. They are the sort of people who were never saved hang around churches. They're the people that like to read Joel Osteen. They're the people who like to have their best life now, but don't particularly care for having anything other than a good life right now. That's those kind of people. You see plenty of churches that are built today for people like that. They're what we call goat sheds. No sheep in them, just the goats. And the reason I bring all this to your attention is simply that the word offense, on is a word that Mark is going to use a lot. Chapter 4, verse 17 was the first usage of it. I've now pulled back and shown you. And now this is our second use of it. He uses it a total of eight times, and every single time he uses it, and I will remember to bring it to your attention in the, the next six... But every time he uses it, he always uses it in the same context. It's the context of people who respond in such a way that prevents them from receiving the gospel message. So it's not just a case of, oh, I'm offended by that, I struggle with that, but I believe anyway. No, 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 no. This isn't Peter saying, God, Lord, we're offended as well, but where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's not scandal. It's not that kind of offense. It's the kind of offense that causes a person to not believe consistently Mark uses it that way. That's why it's important. So what we are saying here is these people have responded to the teaching and they're astounded by his teaching, but they're astounded in the sense that who the heck is this guy, and the very fact of who he is offends them, and so they won't receive that gospel message. Now that brings us to the point of the whole passage. And Jesus says to them in response, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. There's three categories there, okay? So the first point is this, a prophet's not without honor. So if you have a genuine prophet, and obviously we don't have prophets today, Ephesians 2.20, but, it, but I think the principle is still true. If you have someone who is saved and who is gifted, they're not without honor. I could go and preach anywhere and there will be some honour, there will be people who are blessed because I'm gifted and I can do what I do and I go preach and and God works through the preaching of his word and someone's going to get blessed to some degree, you know? And and, and that's not me, that's you as well, you've all got giftings. You can go and do what it is that you do elsewhere and people will get honour. People will sort of give you honor. In other words, there will be a positive response to your ministry as well, wherever you go, with three exceptions. Here are the three exceptions. In your hometown, among your relatives, and in your own home. It's a universal principle. In fact, this is so universal, it's become one of those proverbial phrases that people who aren't really interested in the Bible still know this phrase, because it's a truth that is so well recognized that people can relate to it. Now, we see this in all three of these ways here. Firstly, there are people in Nazareth. They're saying, look, we know this kid. He's he's a carpenter. He hasn't been to rabbinical school. You know, he's just a guy who works with his hands. He's not the sort of guy we want to learn from. And so what they've done is they've prejudged him on the basis of their familiarity with him. And as such, they've refused to hear what he's got to say. The message that he's given isn't going to have good soil because of the familiarity that they have. You know, every single person... Think of your favourite preachers. Think of your favourite hymn writers. Think of the Christian influence that that you've been given by people who you love. All of those people have hometowns. They've got schools. They've got unsaved relatives. You can have guys who preach and when they preach, thousands of people want to come and hear them. They've written books. People want to have their photo taken with them. They're Christian celebrities, for better or worse. And they can go for, see their relatives at Thanksgiving and they say, well, what are you doing these days? Oh, I'm preaching and stuff. Yeah, you, I hear you're quite popular. It's kind of, you know, just weird, you know? And then we are saying, oh man, this is my favorite preacher. And, and, and the family at Thanksgiving are saying, yeah, I just don't get it. <laughs> just don't get it and that's normal that's how it happens and it happens with your hometown with people who grew up with you went to school with you these kind of things it happens with your relatives people who've known you when you were a kid looked babysat you when you were in diapers and it's true of your own family and why is it true of your own family oh because your own family sees all your warts all your scars or your failings or your problems. And so immediately there's a there's a barrier there. You might say something that is a hundred percent true. But if somebody, because of the familiarity that they have with you, the preconceptions that they have of you, the background knowledge that they have of you, or how you treated them 30 minutes ago, all of these things can become barriers that mean that the ministry that you the 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 truth that you teach, the good that you do, doesn't receive any good soil. Now, Jesus is just saying this as a principle. This is, just, this is just how life is. This is how it works. I don't think that Jesus made this expression up. I think he's quoting a proverbial expression that existed before him. And it's, it's something that's worth knowing and being encouraged about. Because I think sometimes we have a tendency to ignore those who know us because those who don't know us want to say nicer things but there's also the opposite problem in that sometimes we need to remember the good that we're doing and that sometimes those who are closest maybe don't see us as as clearly as those who don't know us as well both of these things are true then jesus is simply illustrating here one point of that coin this would be a good sermon to preach maybe sort of at the beginning of, of November or the end of October just to prep you all before you all go to hang out with families at Thanksgiving. Just a chance to remind you, you know what? You, you, you may get nothing this week but frustration. You may have nothing but, you know, quizzical looks and people thinking lowly of you. You know, we all know this, you know. You know, I know with my, my parents, you know, It's hard for them to see me as anything other than a teenager still, you know? And as my kids get older, I know I'm gonna have the same problem. It's just a reminder, we don't wanna be on the wrong side of this in either sense. Now, with that principle in place, I wanna show you something that's quite astonishing. Quite astonishing. Mark, let's take a step back. John, as a gospel writer, is the gospel writer that most clearly shines light on the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that though this is a man, he is God in human form. Luke, the physician, the historian, appropriately enough, is the one that though he recognizes the deity of Christ very sufficiently well, very clearly, He, more than anybody else, shows us the Jesus who gets tired and weary and upset and and the humanity of Christ. Mark does a really good balance between the two. We've seen earlier how when... um, Remark Mark tells us about Jesus calming the storm in the Sea of Galilee and, and how these experienced fishermen all thought they were going to die, that, that what he's doing there is he's giving them a practical lesson from some of the Psalms, Psalm 107 in particular, um, Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 89, um, some uh, passages in Isaiah and Job, and, and just this whole parallel of here is this tumult, it's like a stormy sea, where is god he's left us he's deserted us why are you sleeping god wake up and rescue your people oh god we are all about to be drowned by the waves and then here we have this story and it is literally being fulfilled and jesus is asleep on the boat to show us that he is god that just as god was asleep when the jews cried out to him to wake oh god In the same way, Jesus was asleep because he is God and he's the one they need to cry out to in their storms. He was teaching the deity of Christ most magnificently. And here in chapter 6, we see the bare humanity of Christ. Now, I take a view that is not a mainstream view. We all, all of us, believe in what we call, theologically, the kenosis. The kenosis is the emptying of Christ. The passage for this is one that we're actually going to be doing within a few months, when we hit Philippians after Philemon on Sunday mornings. We'll get to Philippians chapter 2, and it talks about the emptying of Christ, and how he emptied himself. And there's huge debate over what does that actually mean? We all agree that when he came as a man, he was still fully God, but to what degree did he empty himself? Now I take a more minor view. I take the view that when he was here on earth, he functioned as a man. He was God, he was fully God, but he operated out of his human nature. And all the little Catholic and apocryphal stories of Jesus as a child, you know, taking dead birds and bringing, bringing them back to life, it's all rubbish. It's people making up stories they think should have happened. There's no indication in the Bible that he did anything other than operate out of a normal human brain capacity and learning. He had the advantage of his father speaking to him directly and instructing him and by the way, that's the answer to the question here, how does he know so much? Well, that's how he knows. We hear that from Luke's Gospel. But, but aside from that, he's just operating as humanity. And then what happens at his baptism is the Father gives him the Holy Spirit, and he, yes he is God, but not as God, as a man, a human, empowered by the holy spirit he does the things that he does that's my view and i take that view because it becomes very clear and everybody has to agree on this that there are certain attributes of god that jesus seems to have put aside god is omnipresent he's everywhere It is hard for us to understand in that, you know, God is here, God is there, God is around us, God is everywhere. And yet, God is specifically by his Holy Spirit Spirit within us in a distinct sense. It's difficult for us, but we understand that in a different sense, he's everywhere, right? Jesus was born. One place, one time, one point in history. He lived, and moved, and generally speaking, other than when God intervened for miracles, he was working under the normal physics that any other human being had to operate under. He didn't, when he travelled from one town to another, on a hot day, he sweated and had to rehydrate. His feet got tired and dirty and dusty. Walking on water was the exception, not the norm right? So he wasn't omnipresent. In his deity, he was. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, as we saw this morning, he's holding the whole universe together in his deity, but in his humanity, he's not omnipresent. Now what we're going to see also, we know this, the coming of the Son of Man, him coming back, Jesus says that the time of his coming, that the Father knows, but not the angels in heaven. And not even Jesus himself knew when he was coming back. So he wasn't omniscient either. He didn't know everything. You see, but Jesus knew people's hearts. Sure he knew people's hearts. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so at certain times. But his omniscience wasn't something like omnipresence that he had it in his deity that he carried about in his humanity, humanity day to day and i would also argue that his omnipotence that he had within his deity is not something he had in his humanity he had to say i'm only going to do what the father allows me to do what the father's will is for me to do he wasn't able to do anything we're going to see that his lack of omniscience, and his lack of omnipotence in this passage right now. Have a look. In verse uh, 5, he could do no mighty work there. Just, there's an accept clause coming, but let's leave that for a minute. Let's just take a breath, and let's just take the text at face value. It says that Jesus couldn't do something. So argue with me all you like. That's what the text says. He couldn't do it. He was not able to do it. But he's God. He can do anything. Well, no, God can't do everything. God can't deny his own character, his own nature. You know, Jesus put aside his omnipotence. He put aside his omnipresence. He put aside his omniscience but he didn't put aside his character attributes. He was was as gentle as the Father, as loving as the Father. He was as as much a covenant-keeping, faithful God as the Father. In that regard, he was fully God in all of his characteristics. But it was the, the omnipotence, the omniscience, these things that were put aside, I believe, at the kenosis. And so Jesus is not able to do something. What's he not able to do? Well, he's not able to do any mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. That's your omniscience. Very, very interesting. The word marvel or astonish is a word, again, this is our inner textuality, is a word that Mark uses again and again and again. Jesus preaches, they're astonished. We've just seen how in this chapter already, the people are astonished at Jesus' teaching, which drew the connection with chapter one when he went to a synagogue and they're astonished at his teaching. Yeah, we saw that, that connection, right? Now we're seeing the same connection. There is astonishment for the people, but now Jesus is astonished. You take that at face value and it's like Jesus is saying, Wow, I did not expect that. <laughs> Someone who's omniscient, I just don't see that coming from them. He, I think he's put that aside. Now, there are only two times in the Gospels that this word is used of Jesus. Once is here, and he's astonished at the unbelief of the Jews, the other time, he's astonished at the belief of the Gentiles. <laughs> I think this is this fascinates me because Paul says that the coming of the Jew and Gentile together into one church was a mystery. The Old Testament didn't reveal it. God revealed it to Paul. The head of that church is living at a time when it's still a mystery, and, and it's almost as if he doesn't fully get it himself yet. Isn't that bizarre? Really strange. So Jesus has been schooled on the Old Testament. He's been taught what the Old Testament means. But the coming of Jew and Gentile together into one body wasn't taught in the Old Testament. It was a later revelation. I suspect that Jesus figured it out eventually, but the text here tells us that he was amazed. It was like, wow, these people, you know, it's like he's gone to his own people, Israel, and he's been rejected, and he's now doing a few miracles in private for a few people. He goes to Nazareth and there's so few miracles that it's significantly even less than in Israel generally. So much so that he's like, I just can't believe how little I'm actually able to do here. And that is because he's not able to heal because he's only allowed to heal, do what the Father tells him to do. He's only allowed to heal his disciples so we can only heal those people who show that they have faith in his Messiahship. And he goes home to his hometown, to his family, to his own people. And there, more than anywhere else, there's no disciples. That's a hard one, guys. That's very hard. And I tell you again and again, you see this in church history. You see some of the greatest evangelists that have ever walked on the earth. Some of the most gifted evangelists with the greatest of ministries who have wept over their own family who haven't been saved. It's a sad principle and even our Lord was not immune to it. And I tell you what, I pray this for my family quite a lot and that's Lord send someone else. Not because I don't want to, Be no greater joy than leading my own children, my own parents, my own relatives to the Lord. I just recognize that most of the time, it's not how God does it. And sometimes, we just have to say to God, I don't know why it's this way, but it is. And so please, just send someone else. Send someone who doesn't have this problem of familiarity someone that they can hear from and the soil can be good so it's quite a bizarre passage in that regard there's very few that he can heal because there's very little faith and he marvels he's astounded he's surprised he's astonished at the lack of faith that he has he understands the principle but even you know how it is that sometimes you know how something's going to be and it still surprises you just because of how it is you know I just came back from the Boston Marathon, and everybody told me, it's a Boston Special. It's, it's just, you, I can't explain it, it's just special. I had somebody the other week, so I just don't get this whole Boston, everyone goes on about it, he says, you know, it, you know the course is a, it's a net downhill, it's, it's point to point, it's not a great course. You know, and there's, there's loads of big city marathons and they're all well-supported. I, I just, I don't get what the attraction is. And I replied to him afterwards. I said, you just have to go and then you'll find out. And everybody told me, this is gonna be special. And I knew it was gonna be special. I was excited because I knew it was gonna be, I, I, just, I just didn't know until I got there just how special it was. it was. It was special special. I was astounded. I expected it to be special, but I was still astounded. And that was a positive, this is a negative, but it's the same principle. Jesus knows that a prophet isn't received. He's, he, he's not going to get the honor he should have when there is that familiarity from his own family, from his relatives, extended family, and from his, 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 his home region. And yet, such, to such an extent it was true that it even amazed him. That's how it was. One last little thing in this passage before we move on and we finish up, and that is this. He laid his hands on them. There is so much misinformation about laying on of hands, particularly in the charismatic wing of the church. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit has been depersonalized to such an extent that the nature of his ministry and how he works has been so misunderstood that he's almost become this kind of electricity and power that, that is passed on through some sort of electrical connection that you can create. Now, I, I want you to receive the Holy Spirit, so let me lay hands on you. Totally alien to the New Testament. Totally alien to the Bible. First of all, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and you can't have any more or any less of him. You have him. Full stop. So, that's just not possible. Secondly, when people lay hands on people in the Bible, it seems to communicate one thing and one thing only. And that is the passing on of authority, the authorizing of something. So, when somebody is made a leader, then typically, when they're anointed as a leader or something like that, there is the laying on of hands. And that is a recognition, if I ever appointed another uh, pastor in this church or, or a deacon another a deacon in this church then, then I would definitely lay hands on. I don't think there's anything mystical or magical about it, but it's a statement. It's me with the authority that I have saying I recognize the gifting of this person and I with my authority give the authority that I have to this person so that they might have authority. I, I, like, I would like the idea, when I, uh, I get around to marrying somebody here, that I might do the same thing. That when I say, you know, with the authority that's given to me by God and hopefully by that point if I can get my, my stuff sorted out by the state of California as well, I now pronounce you and I want to lay hands on them. Because I, as the person marrying them, have the authority to make this statement. Are you with me? That's what the laying on of hands is about. It's about authority. The passing on of authority. The recognition with that authority. And here, Jesus is laying hands on them. And what he's doing is he's acknowledging, I recognize your faith. You're one of mine. You're a disciple. So I'm acknowledging that. My authority is recognizing your state, your status and you get to be healed. And that is what I believe is going on here. And so, what he does is in that isolated area with very, very, very little fruit, he nevertheless goes about the village's teaching. And that's our last little point and our last little lesson. Jesus had a mission. His mission is, teach and train disciples and if the disciples lived in remote hillside villages and if there were very very few of them they still needed training. There are pastors and preachers who are magnificent at their job and everybody knows it and people at their church put out YouTube clips and thousands of people come to their church And people buy their books, and people invite them to conferences, and people attend the conferences because they're speaking. And that's wonderful that people get to hear such good preaching. I have no problem with that. But there are also preachers and pastors and teachers who do an equally good job, and you and I will never hear of them. And they minister away somewhere, in some small country town somewhere, maybe in a farming community, and maybe... 10 or 12 people go to their church and they faithfully serve them. And when the day comes when the celebrity pastor and the farming pastor come and meet their God, they will be rewarded for the same thing. Their faithfulness to the ministry that they were given. Simple as that. The faithfulness to the ministry they were given. Jesus has got three years of ministry. He spent most of his life providing for his mother and his siblings. He's not got a lot of time. And here he is in the hillside of Nazareth, going from village to village, just being shocked at how few disciples there are. But he's ministering to them anyway. It's a great lesson for us all but it leads to something else which is the recognition that there are too many villages and not enough time and so the disciples that he chose earlier to send out now he gets to send them out and that's what we're going to be studying next time let's pray Father we thank you for your word and we thank you for this wow it's a magnificent passage just a few verses but so much there May we be encouraged by the faithfulness of Christ under difficult circumstances and with little fruit. May we be found to be faithful in our ministry and may we not be discouraged if familiarity prevents there from being fruit. The same was true of our Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you for this encouragement. We thank you for this passage, Lord, and we, we are eager to come again and before your word next time and see where Mark takes us next. We thank you for this book. and We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your faithfulness in teaching us through it. Amen.